Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Hola, hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. I am here with somebody who I have wanted to interview for like literally since I followed her on TikTok. I have Dulce Vasquez. Hola, Dulce. How are you? Hi. Hi, everyone. I am so excited. And I know I, I literally say the same thing like the beginning. I'm like, I'm so excited. I know I say that every week. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it really okay to be true. excited about multiple things. And also this is your podcast. You should just be excited that you have yeah. this amazing podcast. You know what? Okay. So I actually had my alma mater, the magazine for my alma mater contact me and say like, oh, we are doing quotes from some alumni who are podcasters. And they asked like, what makes a good guest? And my answer, it wasn't, it's probably not the exact wording I use, but basically I just said, you know, the most important thing is you interview people who you're interested in, because if you're not interested, then it shows like, why would your audience be interested? If you're not interested in who you're interviewing, why would your audience be? Absolutely. So that's why I'm always excited because I do interview people that I am genuinely interested in. So, and you are one of them. Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> um, before we get into the chisme and into your bio, we always start with the wine. So I know that you just opened a bottle. Girl, I tell did. me what you're drinking. So, you know, when you told me like, hey, you know, obviously wine. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get my wine. People who follow me on, on TikTok know that I'm very like pro-Latina, Latino, like supporting businesses. You know, I think it's really during the pandemic, I really narrowed in on like, well, what are the things that I buy a lot of that I can shift my shopping um, habits from. So I'm so happy that I get to highlight Latino wines because I think that's also, you know, just something that there aren't a lot of them. It's growing, but they're literally growing. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't a, there, there aren't a lot of them. And I didn't have time to go out and find, and I didn't have any in my cellar here Robledo is like an OG, you know, love going to their winery up in Sonoma County. Family who has been winemakers started out as working in the fields, the dad. Um, so I didn't have any in my uh, wine cellar uh, and I didn't have time to go buy another one. So I also want to highlight my friend, Benny, who I was with yesterday. He has a wine labeled called Ofrenda Wines. 
So please look up Ofrenda, look up Robledo, Robledo's OGs. But today I actually have a Mexican wine with me. And this is a brand that every time I go to like fancy Mexican restaurants in Mexico, and I do, I love doing the wine pairings um, because you get to explore so many incredible wineries and people don't think as Mexico as a wine region, but you know, we have Valle de Guadalupe and then we have Parras, which is where this one is from. And my brother came to visit me a couple of weeks ago from uh, Northern Mexico and his girlfriend is from Parras. So they brought me this like beautiful display of several wines. So this is OG Casa Madero, 1597, it was established. Wow. 1597. Yo, like the U.S. is not that old. No, that's 200 years older than the U.S. Like, isn't this crazy? So, you know, I opened it and it had three wines, a a red, a um, rosé, and a white. I'm a huge Chardonnay lover. Yes, I am a basic bitch. But this is um, <laughs> a Chardonnay uh, Chaumont Blanc. Um, so that's what we're having tonight. It's, you know, as we talked previously, it's finally spring. So let's go. So nice. Cheers. So I love that you're doing that. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but I actually created the very first directory of Latino wine brands based in the United States. When I first started the podcast, there was nothing I was searching and I kept seeing like the same kind of 20 wines and everything like that. So I know Robledo family wines are on my directory. It's been really a mission of mine to highlight these wines because so often, like you said, a lot of the families, they've, they started out harvesting, they started out working with the grapes and Some of them have continued to do so. Some of them have gone into management. Some of them have even started their own labels. There are approximately that I have found. Now, I don't have ofrenda on there, so I'm going to need to get that information so I can have that added to the, which I do have something like if people want to add, if there's a wine that's not on there, have it broken down by region. Girl, I have it like down. But yeah, it's so, so important that we highlight these. In fact, the first time when I started asking people, do you know that there's Latino wine brands based in the U.S.? People were like, no, I had no idea. So in that vein, I'm actually drinking Don Chalo, a red blend, Don Chalo. They're out of St. Helena. So I've not, this is the, I was at the Latinx Wine Summit in December in Napa. And I'm going, like I said, I'm going again. Uh, to meet with my vintners and talk to them. And, you know, it's always about building those relationships. So I'm so excited that you're, you're drink, you know, and you're drinking as well. So salud. Salud. Ooh, that was a big one. Oh, this is good. I need to see what's the red blend. What's in here? It's and this is just a beautiful glass. Oh, thank you. I got it. I think legit. I think I got it like home goods. And my sister got me the fancy crate and barrel version of them. And they're just sitting because I don't have enough room and they're just sitting in the cabinet because I have so many wine glasses. I have so many wines. I wish I had a cellar. And girl, like, it's not like a cellar cellar. Like we ain't fancy here. I have a (laughs) rack inside of a closet. Okay. (laughs) I'll have to show you my little area later. (laughs) Because I like I'm overflowing. I have box, and then I know I'm gonna come home with more wine from going to nap. I'm just I don't know. I have nowhere to put it all, but I'm not gonna complain. <laughs> no, no, you and should f- consider getting one of those like storage units. 
Yeah. Oh, we do have a storage unit, but it doesn't have wine in it. But yeah, we would probably need to do that just to make a little bit more room. So when I was talking about Latino wine brands, so I think you saw Heidi Rojas over the weekend. I did. (laughs) She's a friend of the podcast as well. She's been on the podcast. Okay. Did she tell you? She said, oh, that she was going somewhere over the weekend and she's mentioned her name. And I was like, oh, I'm interviewing her on Thursday. And she got so excited. She's like, oh my gosh, you are. Oh and, my God. Uh, so I'm taking the podcast on tour this year. And on oh, April 29th, right. I'm going to be in LA. And she's actually that's performing right. at the uh, event. I love that so much. And 29th. we're featuring Latina wine brands. I have an indigenous woman putting together the grazing table. It's at a Latina-owned art gallery. Girl, what I will figure out what I'm doing on the 29th and change change course. <laughs> so oh, that's what it was. We did talk about we did talk about this, but she didn't tell me what it was. She said she was performing, but I don't think she told me what it was. I have tickets to a show that night already. It's from three to five. Oh, perfect. That's great. This that's is exactly why I did that. That's gonna be the warm-up. That's gonna be the warm-up. Oh, yeah. this is I'll be there. All right. (laughs) See, this is what happens. We just start talking, start whatever. Oh my gosh. Let me read your bio because I haven't even done that. How terrible of me. Oh my God. What? You can read my whole bio? Yeah. You just talk about it. You know, I love, but here's the thing. I love reading people's bios back to them because so often they don't hear it. Like people do it like pre-interview or something. And there's just something about seeing somebody's face when they hear their own bio, having somebody read that, that I just, I love, I absolutely love it. So (laughs) Lutze Vasquez is an education advocate, change maker, and passionate civic leader. Lutze currently serves as assistant vice president for Los Angeles's outpost of Arizona State University. She was previously the managing director of Zocolo Public Square, LA's civic forum. Dulce was appointed by Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti to serve as a commissioner to El Pueblo Historic Monument, Los Angeles' birthplace. Born in Tampico, Mexico, she lived all over the country, but has called L.A. home for the last 15 years. After spending half her childhood undocumented, she attended Northwestern University, the Institute, I can't, this is, I, I knew it was French, the Institute that, I don't know how to say that. Do you know how to Institute. say it? D'études politique. Okay, yeah, that thing. (laughs) (laughs) The political science school. Okay, and earned a master's in public policy from the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. In 2022, she ran for Los Angeles City Council, which gave her a platform to champion dozens of issues she cares deeply about, including housing, public transportation, support for small businesses, education, and women's rights. She lives in South Los Angeles with her husband and two dogs. The two dogs who might bark uh, dur- <laughs> during this episode. That's fine. I have two dogs here. So, <laughs> but they just actually, my, the other dog. So my boyfriend recently moved in. And so he has a dog. No wonder have you have no space. Yeah. <laughs> my dog is used to me getting on here. So normally when I get on the microphone, he just lays down. Actually, he's actually walking around right now. He normally just gets in his bed, lays down. The other dog is a pit bull and he's learning. So now right now he's just laying on the couch because he knows I'm here. So they're pretty, they're pretty good. Every once in a while, they'll make a little bit of noise. But when I'm on microphone, like when I'm recording, 
I don't know. They have like a sense, like she's busy. Mama's busy. (laughs) My dogs have a spidey sense too, because I can be at my desk all day, but it's when the zoom comes on that my dogs want to come in here and like put their head on my knee and be like, Hey, here's my toy. Hey, here's my toy. So I had to close the door today. Uh, There you go. (laughs) So I didn't know that you were born in Mexico. Uh, in fact, obviously I'm in San Diego, you're in LA. So, you know, I got to know you through a little bit through TikTok as you were campaigning for city council, but how old were you when you moved? Because obviously being undocumented is a huge thing in regards to people's perspectives, but also how people treat you when they find out you're undocumented. And then also sometimes how we view ourselves and that changes the whole world. So how old were you when you moved to the U.S. and where did you guys move to? So I was born in Tampico, Tamaulipas, which is a border state to the southern tip of Texas on the Gulf of Mexico side. So Tampico is both a beach city. So I grew up, you know, near the beach, but it's also an oil city probably has about a million people now, which is pretty big and had heavy sort of industrial investment for many years because of petroleum. So I grew up like our main drag had a Popeye's, which I called Popeye's, like everyone called Popeye's, a Whataburger, which, you know, back then it was Whataburger. (laughs) And it had like a Home Depot and like, you know, very American. Tom Tom? Did you have a Tom Tom? <laughs> I don't remember. I don't think so. I don't think so. But I do remember. So I was seven when my, my mom came ahead of me. So I was seven when I was brought here. But McDonald's was so expensive in Mexico that the first thing I like landed at the airport and they took me to McDonald's, I got my happy meal. And I like, <laughs> and you I were came happy in indeed. August. Oh, I was happy. My stepdad joked around, you know, we're sitting down and I get my happy meal and, you know, it was the nineties. So it was August and every August they did the Barbies and the hot wheels. So I got a Barbie with my happy meal on it. I love Barbies. And I was just like the happiest kid ever. And my stepdad looks at me, he's like, okay, we brought you to McDonald's. Can we send you back now? (laughs) Damn, Um, brutal. (laughs) Damn, I know. I'm like, so I actually came on a student visa that then six months later expired. And that's when I became undocumented. I didn't know you could come on a student visa so young. That's so crazy. And so where were you guys living? Just like 20, 25 minutes north of Miami outside of Fort Lauderdale. My dad, my stepdad, I call him dad. So if you hear dad, um, that's my dad. My dad worked in a dairy farm like all of that land, which, you know, Los Angeles, you know, was also, you know, orange groves for so many years. He worked in a dairy farm when I landed and that's where we were. And my mom was a nanny at the time, but had done several years doing everything from like airport food packaging to restaurants, dishwasher, et cetera. And by the time I came through, they had settled down and he was working at the dairy farm and she was a full-time nanny. So obviously when you're that young, you don't understand what undocumented versus documented means. You don't get that you're not here legally, that you are all of those things. So when was like the first time you realized that and what was the impact that it had in regards to you progressing like in high school, going to college, kind of all of those little things? 
So it was actually pretty early on when I was about eight. So I had been here for a year. My mom woke me up early. She always, you know, there were no alarm clocks for eight-year-olds. So my mom came, she woke me up and she sat down in bed with me. And she was like, your abuelita, which it was actually my great-grandmother, uh, not my grandmother. It's like, your abuelita Altagracia passed away. And I was like, okay, you're eight. So you sort of understand some social constructs. And it's like, okay, we're going to go to the funeral and we're going to go to the cemetery. And I remember when I was little with my other great-grandmother, we used to make um, paper flowers during Dia de los Muertos. And I would spend hours making these paper flowers. And then my grandmother wouldn't let me go to the cemetery. She's like, it's not for little kids. But I was eight years old and I was like, okay, we're going to go to the funeral. And mom's like, actually, like, you can't go because you're undocumented. And like, if you ever went back to Mexico, you could never come back here. It wasn't like an undocumented. It was like a, if you went to Mexico, you can't come back here. But and that mom was, the was, she had legal status? Yeah. My mom had, had, was like a, came back and forth on a tourist visa that she would renew. So she was semi-legal. Why didn't they do that for you? Why didn't they put you on a tourist visa then? If she was able to do that, to be able to do the same for you. It gets a lot more complicated. Because, oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I, I can get into this, but um, my mom was a teenager when she had me. You know, I think the social stigma plus sort of some of the logistical things, I was actually registered under my grandparents' name as their kid. So once I but came to the U.S. you understood that was your mom. When I came to the U.S. Really? Wait, wait. So you didn't yeah, know? Yeah, you didn't have a cheese mat. Oh, girl, <laughs> yes. Oh my, you see my mouth drop. Yeah. So you didn't yeah. know your mom was your mom. You thought she was your sister. Yeah. Until you moved Until here? I'm, yeah. How did that, they break that to you? Once I came, once I was in the U.S., she sat me down and she's like, oh, like, by the way, like, the, you know, blah, 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 blah. And like, you're my daughter. You know, a I lot of years me, thinking your like, grandparents are your parents. Yeah, but also as like a seven-year-old, right? There are rules and parents, and then there's like fun. And my mom, my sister, she was coming back and forth from the U.S. all the time. And every time she would come, she would bring all these like bags of stuff, right? Like new clothes for me and shoes and like whatever. So she was the fun sister, right? That like every time she came, I'd get new stuff. And my my grandma, my grandpa, my my, my papa, which I grew up calling them, because everyone else called them my papa. They were the discipline, right? So my grandmother, my mama, you know, she had one of those like very like Mexican, like chase me around the house with a chancla. <laughs> like you had these things to do. I was like ironing my school uniform at six years old. And then my abuelo, my papa Jacinto, he was a businessman. He was the general manager of a car dealership. And he wore a suit to work every day and he expected certain, you know, even at seven, right? Like I got home, my grandmother would be napping in a siesta. I had to do my homework. And then when she woke up and I finished my homework, we would watch telenovelas and I would have cafe con leche y pan dulce at 5 p.m. every day. So when I came to the States and I have my sister, who's like the coolest thing ever, right? Who like buys me all this stuff. And I'm living with her. And she's like, I'm your mom. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> Dulce, that is so crazy. I've heard lots of crazy stories in the last 160 episodes plus. 
I've known friends who've had variations of that where they thought their dad was their dad. And then they found out as an adult that their dad wasn't their dad. That's been in my family, like all of these things. But I think everybody's always known who their mother is. So you're the first to break that on. on what she said. Yeah. Cause I mean, my mom has, um, you know, my mom came to the U S when I was three or four and left me with my grandparents. And those are like the memories that, you know, after three years old, we start remembering certain things. And I was in a household with two adults and then my mom's sisters who, when I was growing up were 14 and like 17. So they're running around being like, mama, papa, mama, papa. and I'm like, okay, mama, papa. <laughs> yeah. and they're my caretakers too. Like my grandmother would take me to like school and would go to like my school functions and Dad just like the, a normal parent. Like just like a normal, yeah. Or a normal guardian because not everybody yeah. has parents. Wow. So I feel like you were a really curious kid. I just get that like vibe from you that you were just like, you wanted to know everything about everything and that you were like, I want to do this. And if people told you you couldn't, you're like, yes, I am. Am I getting that? Am I, is this the right vibe that I'm getting? Probably. <laughs> Probably. Except for one thing. And I will just get into this now since your jaw already dropped about my mom. The one thing I was never curious about was when my mother sat me down and said, I am your mother. She said, you know, I got pregnant at 18. And she's like, oh, like when we went to go tell the guy that I was pregnant, he didn't want anything to do with me and therefore you. And at seven years old, I was like, okay, my dad didn't want me. My father, I should say. My father did not want me. So I grew up with that. My father didn't want me. So it's like, fuck him. I'm going to be great. And he's going to regret. One day he's going to know about me and he's going to regret not wanting me. Me, not like my mother, like me. Yeah. A year ago, 13 months ago, my mother is here for the campaign and she sits me down and she actually tells me that my biological father did not reject me. When he asked her if she was pregnant with his child, she was scared. She was 18 and she said no. So my biological father actually didn't know that I existed for 36 years. You might have seen some of this on TikTok. You know, I, I can't hate someone that didn't know about you. Didn't know. So I reached out to him in January. I found him on Facebook reached out to him in January and met him in March. You can't even call it a reunion because you were never introduced. How was that meeting? I hate someone that doesn't exist, basically, right? I, I lived my life in spite of someone that like doesn't exist. And this is a different person. And I recognize that I carry 50% of his genetics, but it's also someone like I'm a grown-ass woman who has lived her life kind of in spite of this person that doesn't exist, but I don't need saving. I'm not looking for someone to save me. I'm not looking for financial assistance from someone. At the same time, like, you know, I recognize this is a human and they have faults and flaws and red flags. So he's also not perfect. But as a curious person and as a somewhat academic or, or, or scholar, I'm fascinated by the nature nurture aspect of his life and my life. He works for university. I work for university. 
He is a political economist with a master's degree in engineering, and I'm political science major with a master's degree in public policy. He's a political commentator. He ran for office. And and some of this stuff just like wow blows my mind because the side of the family where that I grew up with, I'm very different from my family. You know, there are lots of similarities too. I don't want to like disparage my family and I love them very much, but they call me by my middle name and it, and it's always like, oh, así hace sus cosas. Like, you know, she just, she just like does her own thing, right? Because I am just, I left the house at 18 to go to college and just sort of never, I do my own thing. But, you know, meeting him and just being like, holy crap. I would imagine it could be overwhelming. I will share it with you. And this is not something I've never spoke. Actually, I was waiting for you to talk about this on the podcast because I've never spoken about it. Because my dad is not my biological dad. The gentleman who is my biological dad, I mean, I always knew that. I was, it wasn't like, oh, I didn't know. My parents weren't, they didn't even get married until they met and married when I was almost five years old. So it wasn't, it was, I was like four, I think. So it wasn't like I didn't know. Like I have memories of just me and my mom and just, you know, but there's a man who raised me. But there was a man who did, but he did meet me when I was little and he did not become part of my life. I've never seen him since I was like maybe two or three years old. He's never had anything to do with me. He's never like, but when you said, like, I felt when you said you felt like somebody didn't want you because that's, I I think for a long time, as much as, and I love my, my dad is amazing. He is so amazing. Like, There's nobody else that I would want to call dad because he's just so awesome. But there's still something when you feel like somebody doesn't want you. Mm -hmm. So when you said that, I felt that so hard because even as a 45-year-old woman, right, there's still something where in your case, he didn't know it existed. In my case, it was good that he wasn't in my life, right? Mm -hmm. And it was almost like confirmation of everything that my mom would tell me because she would never bash him, but she would never volunteer information unless I asked. But then at one point when I got older, then she was like, look, he came from a family of wealth. And to them, my mom was a dirty Mexican, which means I'm going to, you know, I'm a dirty Mexican. (laughs) So I get that. And when I was watching your journey, I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to talk to her because <laughs> I've never shared that publicly. Like people that know me, if they talk to me and we get close, they know, but it's something that I don't really ever talk about because I have a dad, right? And there's no, I would never like deny him because he's the man who has loved me wholeheartedly as his blood. He would lay his life down for me. But then, you know, there, like you said, there is that person where you have 50% of this person's DNA and you're like, I don't want anything from you. I don't need anything from you. You know, I'm my own woman. I have my own life. So like everything that you're saying, I was just like totally feeling it and understanding it. And there's not a lot of people that I think you can share those experiences with. Absolutely. And, you know, it's the same, like I owe my dad everything. There are sort of structures in in life, right? And like marrying a woman who has a child. And then welcoming that child into your home. You know, I consider myself really lucky, you know, going back to the original question about being undocumented, I was undocumented only for seven years because my stepdad 
became an American citizen based off of the farm work that he was doing. There was like an easier path back in the day. He became an American citizen and immediately legally adopted me so that I could become an American citizen. And I carry his last name and I got married and I'm like, I'm not changing my last name. Been there, done that, right? Like, I want to, like, like, I I can't wait to see you to hug you because, girl, that's (laughs) that saying, you know? I carry that with me. And, you know, through the process of meeting my biological father, like talking to my dad, you know, sort of like reassuring him, right? Like, this doesn't change our relationship. Like, I love you. Like, you were there for me. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons I don't talk about it a lot because I don't want my dad to think that I'm ever denying him. I never got officially adopted, but I kind of got my name changed by, (laughs) so I added my my dad's, well, I have my birth name, Yanyes. And then when this is like, girl, you could not do this these days. I started school and I was like, well, why don't I have the same name? I want the same last name. So my mom's like, oh, can we register her under this last name? And they're like, yeah, no problem. And so I went all through school, all through everything with my dad's last name. And then when I got my first job at Target and I filed for taxes, they said, sorry, we don't have this name with this social security number. So that's when I had to reintegrate my birth name, Yanges, which is what I used on the podcast. And the only reason I don't use the full name is because girl, I know I'm a blow up, <laughs> but I just want to have a little bit of separation and privacy for my family, right? Like if you really wanted to, obviously you could find out whatever. But then when I did launch the podcast and I did, and so I've used both names, both surnames for so many years that when I went to go get my passport, which goes to the Department of Homeland Security, uh, I had to bring documents showing that I've been using both of these surnames for a certain amount of time and uh, that at least seven years and at least this. So I kind of legally changed my name without legally, does that make sense? Like without legally changing my name kind of went around the process. But then when I started the podcast and and didn't use both names, I literally sat, I took my parents out to lunch and I explained to them why. Feeling my dad understands, but my mom takes so much of that on as well. And I just said like, is I just want you to know I'm only using this last name on the podcast. This is why I want, as things grow and everything, like I want to be able to have a little bit of separation and I want you guys to be able to not be harassed or whatever. You know, you just never know with people. So I really had to explain that, but I get that whole thing of just saying like, this doesn't change our relationship. And then when I found my cousin, it was like, this didn't change our relationship. This is whatever. This is this, this is this. So. Well, I need a drink after that. <laughs> when did your curiosity for politics and for getting into causes and everything, when did that start emerging from you? I mean, we're kind of, we're going after, we're going out of this into something totally different, but I think I need a break from that. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds really cheesy, but it's actually the perfect segue because it was at 14, I became an American citizen. You know, I started high school as an American citizen and I was like, okay, what does this mean? Because now I'm going to be the perfect American, right? Like I have to be the the model citizen now that I'm an American. And it's like, well, what does this mean? So, you know, I like 
I joined the debate team when I was freshman in high school. I don't want to date myself, but girl, you, you already know, said your age. I said, oh yeah, age. that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I know. But when but when you say I started high school in the year two thousand, like yo, like this is the year two thousand. Like, uh, I graduated <laughs> high school in ninety five. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, the first campaign I worked on was Howard Dean. Oh like, yeah. So I was like, oh, but here's the thing. I didn't understand why that cost him everything. Like just, he was so excited. I didn't understand that too far, but, um, but you know, it was like, it was other ways too, right? Like I got really involved with like rock the vote and I would go to all of these free concerts, right? I went to like Vance Warped tour. I went to like Dave Matthews and like all of these different concerts for gratis because I was like registering young people to vote because Puff Daddy said, like, it's on us. Yes, I said Puff Daddy. <laughs> it was Puff Daddy back then. It was. Puff Daddy, um, Puffy, P. Diddy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I started there. And then, you know, it grew from Howard Dean to John Kerry. And then from John Kerry, it was like Al Gore. And then from, you know, it just sort of like went on from there. Or I guess maybe Al Gore was for, I don't remember. I was too young for. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah, Clinton. I was 92. Yeah, I remember Clinton, but um because that you said 2000. 2000 would have been Al Gore. So then yeah. Howard Dean and John Kerry were 0304, you know, you start like two years early. And you know, I grew to be president of my debate team and we would play like mock Congress and I was a girl stater. So, you know, the American Legion auxiliary like sends you to the Capitol and you pretend to like run your own city for a week or two weeks. I don't remember. You know, there's always been just sort of something I'm interested in about that. Obviously when I was in 10th grade, 9-11 happened and that was a huge sort of foreign policy war thing. You know, it was a big deal and it got me super interested in, in diplomacy and foreign policy and how we interact with different states. And uh, I say states as like nation states, not like Georgia or yeah. Oklahoma. Um, Although there is a nation state called Georgia. <laughs> that's why I said, that's why I said Oklahoma, because there is <laughs> correct. <laughs> and then I went to college and wanted to major in political science. I double majored in philosophy. As you read in my bio, I did a program on the creation of the European Union, which is the European Union. It's like, how do you collaborate, not on each other, you know, post-World War II. So I studied in Paris for a while and just like phenomenal experiences that I could never have had if I was undocumented and got a full scholarship to Northwestern. I would never have known Northwestern existed if it hadn't been for the debate team because we would travel to tournaments around the country. And that was, my parents didn't have money for college tours. Also, they wouldn't have even known what a college tour was. So I got to visit all of these different universities while being on the competitive debate team at my public high school. So fund your public high schools. So I got to visit Harvard, I got to visit Penn and Emory and Northwestern, and I just fell in love with Northwestern and I got in, I got a full ride and I was like, I'm going to Chicago, I don't care how cold it is, like this is where I belong. That's sort of like my political beginnings. And of course, one more thing, I went to Northwestern my sophomore year. The graduation speaker was one 
Barack Obama. Oh, wow. And I volunteered at graduation as an usher just to see this guy talk because it's, I was in Illinois. Everyone was talking about him. I went home after hearing him be the commencement speaker in 2006. And I was like, this guy is going to be our next president and I want to work for him. And I have it in my diary. I graduate in 2008. He's in the middle of his campaign for president. And I want to go work for his campaign. You know, I didn't have money to go work for his campaign. And I'll tell you why. And there are people trying to fix this. And, you know, it was a different time. But all of my fancy Northwestern classmates, if you don't know, Northwestern is a private institution with about 8,000 undergraduates that back then cost $60,000 a year. And now it's probably upwards of $80,000 a year. Great experience, but that's a reality. I was like, how do I work on the Obama campaign? I made buttons, you know, on campus for him and like, you know, did whatever. So I was like, okay, I'm graduating. How do I go work on the Obama campaign? And they're like, well, you have to go to Iowa. And I was like, great. What do I need to do in Iowa? And they're like, well, you know, you show up as a volunteer. Then eventually when they have an opening, they'll just hire you. And I was like, okay, but like, how am I going to take care of my rent and my gas and shit in the meantime? And they're like, oh yeah, you just have to pay for that on your own until you get on staff. And I was like, I don't have the money for that. I don't have the resources. I don't have the parents. And like, and all of these kids had parents who were just like, here's some rent money. Here's some gas. Here's a car, right? You know, I wasn't going to take my 94 Civic to Iowa. I could barely make it, you know, across town. So <laughs> I did not get a job on the Obama campaign because I couldn't afford to. And then all of my classmates who did make that jump, who had parents to support them to make that jump, got jobs at the White House. And they did not look like me. That's such a big thing that we don't talk about, right? Like I didn't even think about volunteering. Yeah, you have to volunteer. But you're if you're volunteering, you're doing full-time hours volunteering in a presidential mm-hmm. campaign. For sure. That just saddens me. Honestly, that saddens me because like you said, there's something that has to be done because there's just so, if you don't already have those advantages, it becomes very, very difficult to get to that point. How was it being a Latina in Paris? (laughs) While we wrap up the previous point, I just want to shout out Carlos Vera is the founder and current executive director of Pay Our Interns, because this was also a big problem in Washington, that people with the funds to get housing and food and stuff would get these unpaid internships in congressional offices then they you know, would obviously advance their careers having worked for a representative or a senator or what have you because of these unpaid internships. So being able to pay your interns is huge for our people. I will say that most of the interns I it, within the San Diego City Council are paid interns. I be, I'm not sure if it's 100%, but I would say at the very least 80 to 90% of internships within the San Diego City Council are paid internships. Love that. Because of that, I mean, how are you supposed to get experience if you can't afford to get the experience? Literally, you can't afford to get the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. Something I'm so glad to hear that there's a resource to that's trying to change this because, you know, it shouldn't be you have to pay to play, so to speak. That's correct. You know, we we need to get out of that mindset. Okay, back to my other question. Yes. How was it being a Latina in Paris? Girl, it was awesome. A, I studied French for for many years because I speak Spanish fluently because I'm Mexican. 
So when I got to high school and college, I took French. You know, I romanticized Paris, like most, a lot of people, I think, you know, romanticized Paris. But I get to Paris and I understand whether it's a myth or an actuality. It was an actuality, actually. The French people don't like Americans. Yeah. But you speak no, Spanish. Sí, porque yo soy mexicana. Y a todos, invitamos a la mexicana, invitamos a la mexicana, mírala, like, you know, we're going to go party, we're going to do this. And they took me everywhere. Everywhere. It was the best time. The best time. Yeah, I work at a university now and I interact with a lot of students. And I'm just like, whatever you can do to go abroad, wherever it is, like whatever you're interested in, it's just like, when are you going to have three, four, five uninterrupted months living in a foreign country? I have not been able to replicate that in my career, you know, maybe in the future, but no, being 20 years old in Paris and being able to navigate both the French language, Spanish, you know, tell everyone like, not American, I'm Mexican. Like, let's go. It was amazing. And you know, I had a feeling you were going to say that because I've heard <laughs> other instances where you don't start off with English. You start off with a second language and then oftentimes they do speak English and then they'll speak English. If then, then if they realize you also speak English, then they're willing to speak English with you, but don't be English forward. <laughs> Yeah, definitely not English forward. That is so crazy. Okay, back to this is, see, we just bounce all over the place. It's fine. It's what we just go with the flow. So you didn't have this opportunity to work with Obama and shifting back to, with for Obama. And where did you end up going from here? Because obviously you have your head, like you have your focus. You're like, I want to be in politics. I want to be a, a change maker. I want to do this. Where do you go from that point when you're like, your dreams is seemingly crushed at that moment, at that point. I was a political science major and that was like an option. But upon graduation, like that was one avenue. Another avenue is I am actually a Teach for America reject. Like I wanted, you know, back then it was really, I might still be, I'm not sure. But back then it was like really prestigious to be accepted to Teach for America. My boss is a Teach for America alum. Yeah. So it was like very, very prestigious. They were taking all of these students from elite universities and putting them in urban, sometimes rural areas that were sort of neglected. It was very prestigious at the time. I think it probably still is, but I I just don't know. And I got rejected. And that was such a blow to my ego that I carried. I carried and I carry you know, I talk about it more now that I'm a Teach for America reject because most people can't believe it now. <laughs> um, but it was one of those, like, I got rejected and therefore, like, I can't be a teacher. So I did not pursue, like, being a teacher. And you I have done... That is a sign of... Na- I, no, of my personal true. failure. Yeah. Of, like, my personal failure of, like, oh, like, I am not meant to be a teacher. So now that I I work in education right? Because I'm very passionate about Latinos going to college. This became an issue during the campaign because I said, I am an educator. An educator has different definitions, right? Educator can be, you are a teacher or you are an administrator in like a teaching institution setting, et cetera. So, you know, as I said, like I interact with students, I encourage study abroad. So that was back to Teach for America. I was Teach for America reject. And then the third thing is, um, was like, okay, like everyone else in the world 
there's always law school. So I took the LSAT. I didn't get the scores that I wanted for the schools that I wanted to apply to. Latina from a public school at an elite institution, I was no longer an A plus student. So I also had to sort of like course correct for now being a B student. So I couldn't apply with like those LSAT scores or those grades. You know, one of them had to, you know, come up. So my best friend was like, she studied theater and she's like, hey, I want to be an actress. I'm going to move to LA. It's my best friend. Like I was her maid of honor at her wedding. Uh, She was my matron of honor at my wedding. She's like, come to Los Angeles with me. Like, let's go. And I was like, well, okay. Like I can like find a job for, for two years and apply to law school, you know, get retake the LSAT and go to law school. And two years is now 15. And I never went to law school. Thank God. I don't think I could have survived law school. It just threw you in a totally different path. And I love, like, thank you for sharing your failures because I think so often we talk about like all of our successes, but we learn so, so much more through the failures. And I think when we share those, we also share with other people, it's okay to fail. Like you're not stuck where you are. It's okay to fail. It's okay to fail. But what my boss says now, I work for one of the most brilliant education innovators, I think probably in the world, at least the country. The reason why Arizona State University has been such a such a leader, uh, such a creative leader is because of our leadership. And he wants to try everything and he allows us to try everything. And he's just like, fail fast. You know, if it's not going to work, like fail fast, move on, like let's go to the next thing. So yeah, I do believe that like the failures teach you a lot more than the wins. I want to kind of bump up a little bit to your recent bid for LA City Council. Um, A failure. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was not a failure. It was not a failure. I just did not win the seat. Yes. There was so much more that I found very interesting. As somebody who, who didn't know you, as somebody who you came across my FYP, then I was like, oh, she seems interesting. Let me follow her. And then just kind of following the journey and then seeing the pushback, the rhetoric, all of these different things. First of all, what made you decide to run and to run now? So it actually goes sort of a little bit back. You know, I came to Los Angeles and I ran Socalo Public Square, which is a public speaker series, open to the public, free. And I ran that for nine years. And while I was there, the founder that I worked for, he was like, we are nonpartisan, non-political, nonprofit. And as the you know managing director of this, you have to be that too. So for nine years, like I didn't get involved in campaign or it's not that I didn't get involved in, in campaigns. I just like, I didn't engage as much as I would have wanted to. Right. So when I left there in 2016, it was the middle of Hillary's election. And I put in my notice and flew myself to Orlando with my mother to go knock on doors in Orlando to try to turn Florida blue. You know, it was a big state in 2016. Yeah. So I flew myself out there, volunteered on the campaign. It was a beautiful moment too, because that weekend in Orlando, President Obama was doing a rally for Hillary. And because I had volunteered, you know, all week, 
they gave us first access into the the venue. So we were right in the front and I was with my mom who I had brought up from South Florida to come with me. And at the end of the speech of, of the rally, he starts going around shaking hands of everyone in like the front row. And I looked at my mom and I was like, hey, like he's gonna walk through here and you're gonna shake his hand and I'm gonna take a picture of you. And my mom cleans houses for a living, right? And she was also just very like, you know, she was like, no, 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 you shake his hand. Like you shake his hand, not me, like not me, like, like very like scared. And I was like, no, like you're going to do this. I will meet him again. And I haven't yet, but we'll get, we, I'll get there. You will, you uh, will. So, so he comes by, she shakes his, it wasn't even a shake actually. She like held his hand and I have a picture, this beautiful picture of the two of them. And I'm just like, this is a moment, right? Where like my mother cleans houses. She came to the US. She like gave me a better life. And like today, because of like the work that I do and the opportunities that I've been given, she gets to meet the president. I love that. So anyway, 2016, a week later or like four days later, I'm in the Javits Center in New York waiting for Hillary to come out. And we know what happened. I cried the whole flight home. And I spent the next two years sort of both like starting a new job, but also sort of in this like depressed state as I think a lot of people and a lot of women were. But in 2018, just like two years later, as I'm I'm settled in my job and doing other things, 2018, all of these incredible women of color win their congressional races. It's AOC, it's Yana Presley, it's the squad, mm-hmm. right? And I am just like so invigorated by all of these powerful women of color running for office. And I was like, okay, this is my sign. Like I have to get engaged, right? I have to help more women run for office. I have to be part of the political process. And a month later, my neighbor emails me and she's like, Hey, like, do you want to be part of this slate that we're running for to be a delegate to the California Democratic Party? And I was like, I don't know what this is. Like you're crazy. And I was like, Kadem? Yeah. Girl, I, I got know what it was. Yeah. I had no idea. I was like, wait, is this the DNC? Like, do we get to go to convention? And she's like, yeah, but for California, like it's not, it's not the one on TV. And I was like, all right, well, so she gets <laughs> me to run and I win, you know, a spot to go to the Kadam convention. And I was like, oh my God, like this is a whole world. I didn't even know existed. Right. So I go to my first convention and then I go to my second convention and it's like election year, right? Like before 2020 and all of these presidential candidates are there. And it's like Kamala and Mayor Pete and Elizabeth Warren and Tom Steyer and like all these folks are at convention. I'm like, oh, they're just like walking around. Like, this is great. I became a delegate and I was like, all right. In 2020, I got a spot on the county Democratic Party. And, you know, I won that. And then literally it was 10 days after the primary in 2020 that COVID happened. And I was in my last year of graduate school and my professor at the time, supervisor, Sev Yaroslavsky, he turned the entire curriculum of the class into analyzing how the municipal, state, and federal response, and not just that, but also like the business response, the philanthropic response to COVID. So we got to hear from supervisors, from Dr. Ferrer, who's like, you know, head of our Department of Public Health. Um, We got to hear from the mayor. We got to hear from all these folks. And I was also a sitting commissioner at the time, right? So 
I was also just like extremely frustrated that like I was managed, you know, I was the commissioner for a city owned property that required the property to shut down and then didn't tell the vendors whether or not they still had to pay rent. They left them in this like limbo. And I was just frustrated at everything of how we were managing, how we were responding, how everything. And then three months later, I'm graduating from grad school and the George Floyd protests are happening. And I'm so upset and like so angry. And like there were, you know, other things that, you know, details like I'll leave out of there. But eventually, like my friend was like, you should run for city council. And I was like, yes, I should. (laughs) And it was impulsive. And it was, I don't want to say stupid because like the result is what the result is, but like, it was very impulsive, but I'm also the person like, once I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to see it through. Yeah. Right. So I saw it through and it was a wild ride. I mean, just like I said, somebody from the outside looking in, it definitely did. So I want to paint a little bit of a picture in regards to the area. So you had recently purchased a home in the area that you were running for. And I'm saying all of these, these are just straight. I'm not making any judgment or anything. I'm saying them because I want to paint the right, the picture. So when we talk about the other stuff, people understand Mm -hmm. You're married to, your husband is white. He's a white man. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the area that you ran in is a predominantly Latino area. The current city council member is black, correct? Is a black man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was running again for another term. And there was a lot of, from what I could see, again, outside looking in, there was a lot of people that were like coveting that seat it got really dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I remember seeing like accurate in the area you moved here. You moved into the area specifically just to run for the office. She doesn't understand us. She has a white husband. She just moved like that's honestly, I, I saw a lot of that and they were like putting another Latina against you as well, but they weren't focused on the incumbent. They were focused on you. Mm-hmm. So when these things are being said about you that you don't know the culture because apparently being married to a white man means that it negates all of your experiences being an undocumented immigrant and born in Mexico and it apparently negates all of that. And you weren't fighting against it. You were fighting for these things that people wanted. It seems like, again, Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, saying what I saw, because I often say sometimes that our own community, we're our own worst enemy. And when you are focused on, and I think you were saying that the current, and it doesn't matter the ethnicity of the current council member, what matters Mm -hmm. is, are they doing their job and are they fighting for their constituents? That's really what it comes down to, right? And I believe there was a lot of people who didn't and don't believe that he is doing a good job for the area that he's serving. However, instead of focusing their energy on the current sitting council member, it felt like it was Latino versus Latino or Latina versus Latina. Like I said, those are just what I observe. Mm-hmm. Am I observing those things correctly? And then also the second part, like how much of a toll, I could imagine how much of a toll that would take on you. How much of a toll did it? All of the things are accurate. All of the things are accurate. And, you know, I think the part that I want to reiterate that you caught on was that all of these things were happening 
to me and I didn't fight back. And that was by choice. I will say facts without opinion. Um, There were five people who were going to run for the seat. One African-American and four Latinos. We call it fold papers. So it means like they are interested in running. But then you have to go out into the community and you have to get signatures to make it onto the ballot, right? Only two of us made it onto the ballot. The young woman who you are referencing did not make it onto the ballot, but continued to run a write-in campaign, which is very, very difficult to do, fact. And I, you know, even from the time where she was sort of officially running before, you know, she didn't make it onto the ballot, outwardly said to folks, like, both about the incumbent opponent and about her, A, I will, like, never disparage a Latina, will never disparage a Latina. And then against him, because there was a racial aspect to this, I instructed my team, you know, from very early on, like, you know, I had talking points about the fact that, like, it shouldn't matter that I am a Latina running for an 80% Latino district. I should be able to be any color. And like you said, if I'm serving my community well, like, that's fine. It just so happens to be that I was born in a foreign country just like 43% of the district was born in a foreign country. 43% of the district was not born in the United States. And I take that experience to inform the policies that I want to create and the decisions that I make moving forward. And that is why I'm a great candidate. And I will not go out and tell people why other people are not great candidates. And in the time since, when other people have asked me like, hey, will you oh, like you should support me for this race because the other person is terrible. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't come to me and tell me why the other person's terrible. Come to me and tell me why you're great. And I take that deeply to heart. And that is how I ran my campaign. So I did maybe two videos of like, these things are not true. And this is how I move forward because this is what helps me sleep at night. And I decided to ignore the raucous or you know, maybe not ignore because ignore means that I did not absorb it. And I did absorb it. I absorbed so much of it that I was put into tailspins constantly. And I recognize now a year later, because I did a lot of work on myself and eventually getting an ADHD diagnosis last fall and understanding that some ADHDers and I'm among them have something called rejection sensitivity dysphoria. So, you know, in a work setting, like I'm afraid of like negative feedback, right? Like I'm just, I'm, I love being told like I'm doing a good job. And, and, you know, sometimes I'm afraid of doing projects because they're not perfect. Perfectionism is, is, is a part of that. And like getting all of that negative feedback, you know, maybe if there was 1% of truth, a lot of it relies. I was like, okay, like, yeah, I am a terrible person. Oh yeah. Like, I didn't move here to run. Like I moved here because like Los Angeles is unaffordable and my husband wanted a house. Like, and I've never felt more at home than like living in, you know, in Florida, we lived in a low income white community in Chicago. I lived on a call, like expensive college campus. Right. And then, you know, prior to this, like I lived in downtown Los Angeles next to Skid Row. And here, you know, I've got 
Guatemalans on one side and I've got Belizeans on the other side and Mexican-Americans in front of me and a black family like on both sides. And like, I've never felt more at home. And then to be told like, you are a gentrifier, you don't belong in this community. And I was like, but I feel so at home. Like, I don't understand this. And I was like, okay, the campaign's over. Like maybe my like haters and detractors will go away. And I left social media for a while. And, you know, I came back in sometime in the late fall and my haters were still there. And I was like, you know what? No matter what I do, that's just going to be it. I'm going to tell you something that one of my friends told me, like as I was starting the podcast and, and everything, and she told me, you know, you've made it when people have to hurl insults, insults at you. When you get your first hate comment, that's when you know you've made it because people you have no effect on, they have nothing better to do than to just throw hate. So my first hate comment, when somebody told me I had a huge forehead, which I know I don't, I have like a little forehead, (laughs) but it was the fact that somebody's like, oh my gosh, you look horrible. You have a big forehead. And I embraced it. I was like, yeah. And it's because she already put that in my head. She's like, as your podcast gets more popular and as you grow, you're going to have people giving you negative comments. She's like, and that's because they can't do what you're doing. That's because they don't have the guts to do what you're doing. So they have to hate on you to make themselves feel better. I'm relaying this information to you. You have haters because they can't do what you can do, Luisa. They're afraid to do what you have done and what you're doing. And that's why they will continue to hate on you. I call them the keyboard commandos, right? Because <laughs> they get in front of your face and they can't say shit. Like they're going to be all nice and sweet or never, you'll never know that they might be like behind these things, but they will never have your balls. They will never have your ganas. They will never have the sparkle, the shine that you not only have, but that you are projecting out into the world. And they hate themselves for it. And that's why they need to hate on you. Because I can tell like that still stings. Like as you're talking about it, I can see it in your eyes. That's still a big sting. And it's just preparing you for something else, right? What is your next plan? Do you plan on running again? Do you want to go into something else? Like, because girl, you have so much to give. You do so much. And I see that just as an observer on your social media. Like I get so, and I know I'm probably not the only one, but I get the opportunity to tell you this. I get so inspired by watching all of the work and all of the places that you go. So you might have these haters that are very vocal, but you have, I guarantee you, you have way more people that you're inspiring and that you're affecting. Yes. I'm having coffee with someone tomorrow who wrote to me on LinkedIn and she's like, you inspired me to run for office. I filed. Can I pick your brain on like what I should be doing? And I will always say yes to those sort of folks. Like you will, you know, I read something on social media this week that I reposted and I was like, I'm never free. I just make time. And I will always make time at work for like students that need career advice, but also for like candidates who need to be guided or want to be guided, right? So I hear that and I know it and it's still so hard. Well, girl, if you need to hear it, I will text you when you need, if you're like, I need to hear it. Just text me 
And I'll be like, okay, here it is. <laughs> yeah. So what is next? I had slowly been working on a couple of different projects. Obviously, I still have a day job. I still have a husband and a family and a, and a household to, to keep up. But I will tell you because once I put it out into the world, I mean, it's happening regardless, right? It's happening regardless. I just, you know, sometimes I have to keep myself accountable that like I said this, so that hopefully someone will like follow me like, what's happening with this? Two of the things that I've learned from running for city council, I want to take action on. So one of them is that 80% Latino district. And that's Latino sort of across the board, right? Like first gen, second gen, high undocumented population. But I would go knock on doors and nine out of 10 conversations I was having were in Spanish, in Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. um, people's dominant, right? People's dominant language is Spanish. And I was encountering issues of like, oh, like my ballot still comes to me in English or, oh, like, you know, I don't get information in Spanish or et cetera. So last summer, I filed to open a nonprofit voter education organization. And I recently got an IRS designation as a tax exempt organization that I am calling Latinos Votamos. When I launch, and I'm telling you here, when I launch, our mission is to nonpartisan, non-biased, educate Spanish language. None of this like translation stuff that we see with some organizations, like they'll translate their stuff into Spanish. This will be entirely 100% in Spanish to reach our comunidad, what the next special election is, where to vote, what the deadlines, but also like there's no place for candidate and for nonpartisan candidate information, right? Like I encountered places where they're like, you're off the ballot right now. And I just remember like this guy goes down the, the ballot and he's like, oh, for Congress, I'm voting for Sandra Martinez. And I was like, okay, why are you voting for Sandra Martinez? And he's like, that's my wife's name. <laughs> and I and was there's like, so many people that vote like that. So many people. And I was like, we're gonna send some education, you know, at least to tell you that like Sandra Martinez is like, an urban planner or a biologist or like whatever it is, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's no information on candidates, right? Like that's centralized, like, you know, the secretary of state sends these booklets. They have state information, right? They miss yeah. out the municipal information and the municipal information. As I was running for city council, I was like, city council, like they do like the broken sidewalks and the potholes and the trash and the policing. And like, Girl, all I tell things, people like, all the time, like you have to vote into your local elections. That's where your day to day, like to sit, that's what affects you day to day. State obviously will affect you. Will federal affect you? Of course. But on your day to day. Latinos have like a one track mind of like, we have to vote for president and that's it. Yeah. So I'm working on that project. I'm going to give you uh, a applause right now. That's so awesome. Thank you for so, sharing that. That's amazing. Oh, I got more. I got oh, more. Okay. Like, tell me, tell me. Like, got got me, got me. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the other thing I learned was that as a first time candidate and as an immigrant, it's really hard to raise money, really hard to raise money. Some of these are like relationships. And of course you make some of those relationships through university or through, you know, membership organizations or whatever it is. I am starting a pack. Last year during the campaign, I made these shirts called Elect Immigrants. And that will be the name of my pack, Elect Immigrants Pack, to fund 
immigrant candidates at any level. And I'm going to open that up to any immigrants, right? Like you can be an Afghani refugee, you can be Latino, whatever ethnicity, Asian American, et cetera, elect immigrants. And I think that that is so necessary to encourage the new generations. So I have a question in regards to that. Yeah. Because I think it has to be asked, right? European immigrants tend to have an easier time because they're white. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Does that include European immigrants? I have not gotten that far yet. Obviously, like I'll put together a board to decide, you know, not everyone that just like applies will get funding. As of right now, my thinking is just foreign born people. So I have not thought that far. Gotcha. But there you go. But because yeah. people will ask, people will wonder. Yeah. Honestly, like I think my answer based of like, didn't even think about European immigrants. Like I'm thinking about, you know, the, you know, one of my friends in, in college, it was a Bosnian refugee from like the early nineties, who's now, you know, sort of like of age. And like, those are the folks that like, we should be in office. Right. Right. So I haven't thought that far. There you go. I'm helping you. I'm helping yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You're, you're about <laughs> to be on my board. Girl, just tell me. I'm there. <laughs> and I think the, the next thing, which you might have sort of hinted at, I'm going to run again. And um, and I would be remiss to say the LA Times did endorse you. They did. They did endorse That's me. Huge. Um, you know, I want to serve, right? It's not about the, the city council position. You know, I ran for city council because I was just frustrated And now sort of like with that under my belt and sort of understanding more of the landscape, I'm going to run for an assembly seat in the California legislature. So you heard it. You heard the chisme here first. That's See, this is really spilling the chisme. This This is is the chisme. This is really spilling the chisme. This is the chisme. I love that. If there's anything I can help you with. So if you see my my haters on TikTok, my favorite was... um, this woman went through all of my TikToks and just wrote kinkles. Really? That's her biggest insult? Kinkles? <laughs> if that is the biggest, if that is your biggest hater, girl. It wasn't my biggest that's... hater. It wasn't my biggest hater, but like, I just like, it's, it's hilarious. Cause I'm funny. like, you know, you know, if somebody would have saw me when I came back from Nashville, I had kinkles for like three days cause mm-hmm. it was a beast getting back. And uh, yeah. I am so excited for you, Dulce. Seriously, girl, I'm telling you, I want to be part of whatever you're doing. That's freaking awesome. I love that. I think you're getting this platform. You're using the platform for what you really believe in. And it's it very much aligns with a lot of things that I believe in. And I think people see you. You need to find, and I need to find where we could get this. If you've Have you ever seen the movie? We were talking about like, oh, somebody voted for so-and-so because of name recognition or something. There's this movie, an Eddie Murphy movie called The Distinguished Gentleman. Have you ever seen that? I have not. So he plays, so the, I think it's a a senator, no, a congressman from Florida passes away. And they're like, the biggest con is going to Washington, right? That's like where all the real con people are. So he uses his middle name and his last name to get on the ballot. And people are like, oh, so-and-so, don't we always vote for him? So they vote based on the name alone and end up sending a freshman to Congress, Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. And it is, girl, I'm telling you, 
that I've mentioned it a couple of times. It's probably been a while since I've mentioned it, but that has made such an lasting impression on me, that movie. And I'm going to have to gentleman. I'm going to have to distinguished gentleman with Eddie Murphy, such a good movie. And it's real. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is this really how politics is? Like when you watch it and I, and now being in politics, I mean, local politics is obviously a little bit different, but I was like, oh, I could totally imagine it being that. So you got to find that. I am so, thank you so much for spending so much time talking to me. I know this is a little longer, I know this was a little longer, but I promise like, you can't tell me this was not worth (laughs) extra time. You cannot tell me that this is, this was, I had such a great time with you and I can't wait to see you in person. Yes. And I'm super, super excited, girl. I'm sorry. You're now we're friends and you can't get rid of me. I'm just telling you. No, that. that's, that's fantastic. Cause anyone that's like friends with Heidi too, like she's such a badass. like her story is incredible too. And I'm so happy that this is TikTok, right? Like yes. TikTok brought us together and you know, the Latina follow train is real. And like, we're part of the cohort that is about uplifting Latinas and is about telling Latina stories. And it is about breaking that cycle of the crabs and the bucket mentality of like, there's only space for one of us and there's only so much to give or so much to take or so much to whatever, whatever it is like, no, everyone's going to eat. Right. You know, when we're at the table, like everyone's going to eat girl, especially when a Latina's at the table, everyone's going to eat. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's um, going to eat and you just have to go with that spirit and that absolutely like, love. I always give everybody an opportunity to share anything. Like we, t- I know we touched on so many things, but if there's any last words you want to say, any parting words before we end this interview, please share them now. You know, I think, I think that was it. I think that we're the start of a very different generation, you know, as we talk about healing and migration and and trauma, um, we are the cycle breakers. And if you are choosing love, and if you're choosing to uplift fellow Latinas, really to uplift like humanity, right? Because like, you should just be treating humans with like dignity, but like, especially Latinas, because I think we've been so overlooked and so passed over and so like sort of pigeonholed into a certain role. And we didn't even get into like, not having children or not fitting into this mold or not whatever, right? Like just move forward with that. Like your life will change. Like these opportunities, you know, I partly create them, but they partly come to me because I think I just, I, I, I manifest a lot of that based on how I treat people and people will show up for me. And I think we saw that through the campaign where people are just like, how is she getting all this traction or how is she getting all this money? And it's like, I show up. Yeah. I show up for people that I love and I make time for causes and people that, you know, deserve it and you move on. I mean, there's nothing else to say beyond that. Thank you so, so much. And mi gente, as, as things progress with all of the things that Dulce is doing, we'll make sure to keep you updated. We'll have to have her on for an update when, once she gets all these things going as well. So Muchísimas gracias, Dulce. Thank you so much. And until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of 
the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.